introduce myself, uh, but I do appreciate your prayers as we've been uh, recovering. I know some other folks have been dealing with COVID and uh, sinus infections and different things. So a lot of sickness going around now. Uh, if I talk softly or too loudly, just understand it's because I'm still not got some hearing in my left ear. So, so I'm not really aware of how loud I'm speaking. Uh, but, but so say it loud. So I'll just overcompensate. Uh, but thank you for your prayers. Uh, be sharing, coming back to John chapter 10, as you make your way there in the scriptures. Um, uh, definitely the last couple of weeks have been sanctifying uh, in the sense, and I always learn something about myself and my relationship with the Lord. Um, and any of you who have suffered any at all uh, have probably come to this realization as well. But uh, particularly the early this morning, I was uh, up at about four o'clock repenting uh, that I am not very patient in suffering. Uh, and the reason that was uh, an issue for me is because of my convictions that God is sovereign uh, and that in his providence, suffering comes into my life and yours. Uh, and as we were singing a moment ago, I, I'm ashamed that in the midst of that providence, I'm complaining. Now, I'm not alone. Uh, I know we've heard of the patience of Job, but if you read the book of Job, uh, he had his complaints. Uh, all, he was patient in the sense that he never cursed God and abandoned and uh, just rejected God altogether, but he certainly wasn't silent in his suffering. Um, so, so we're not in terrible company with Job, but uh, it was really convicting for me that if we're going to trust the providence of God, uh, then be careful that when we're in the midst of it, that we're not complaining about the very thing uh, that we're rejoicing in in some other capacity. So it was a learning experience for me, and uh, I pray that as you uh, suffer, and you surely will, uh, that it will be a learning experience for you as well. Uh, as I mentioned, we'll be in chapter 10 this morning, kind of working our way through the Gospel of John. Uh, it's been an interesting study for me. Uh, the Gospel of John is perhaps not as not as easily uh, worked through as some other books. For me, the epistles are much easier because they're more directly didactic. Uh, they're uh, doctrinal, rich, doc, rich, uh, rich doctrinally, and my mind just works through that more, more consistently. But in the Gospel of John, we have that doctrine, true, but uh, maybe even more of a narrative form and a uh, in, in a very different way. So it's, it's been challenging for me and good for me, and I pray it has been for you. Uh, by the way, chapter divisions are not part of the inspired word. They're uh, later editions to help us track our way through the word. So this is one of those chapter divisions that I think is rather unfortunate. But he begins in verse nine, chapter 9. Uh, Jesus has been dealing. Of course, the, the man has been healed. Uh, his sight has been restored that has caused a bit of a controversy. His parents um, sort of throw the young man under the bus and uh, force him to confess his own uh, blindness where they're just uh, kind of reluctant to do that and be thrown out of the synagogue. Uh, so, so there's a controversy. And finally, Jesus meets the man and he comes to believe in Christ. And then there's a discourse between Jesus and the religious leaders. And the last time I preached, I was sharing from chapter 9, the latter verses there, verse 35 through 41. Uh, Jesus sort of confronts the religious leaders there. Verse 38, the, the man who's born blind responds to the Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And then Jesus says, verse 39, for judgment I am coming to this world so that those who do not see may see. And that those who see may become blind. And that's a, that's a difficult passage to understand what he means. And I was sharing that the last time. But my point here is that there's, this, there's been this ongoing discourse all the way from chapter 8 with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Jesus departs the temple and, and there are other experiences that happen there. But it always brings him back into this, this discourse with the religious leaders. And so nothing has changed here. Verse 40 of chapter 9, he says, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? And Jesus says to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. Now, there's no break there. Uh, 
He doesn't go away and come again another day. Uh, the flow here is this is in the same conversation. So Jesus, in that very same context and in that same discourse, says to them, chapter 10, verse 1, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts them forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, verse 6 is interesting because it says here, this figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So whatever, whatever you read in the first verses there, whatever Jesus intended or meant by sharing that, they didn't understand it. it just, didn't, just didn't sink in. And so Jesus follows that up now in verse 7. So Jesus says to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have, new, they may have life and have it abundantly. And then he shifts again. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And he flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I receive from my Father. A division occurred among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? And others were saying these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of a blind man, can he? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, I ask for your help this morning in, in the understanding and the speaking and the proclamation of your word and your truth. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy purchased through Jesus Christ, the good shepherd and the door. And Lord, I just pray that his name would be exalted here this morning. I pray that every heart would be drawn to consider the truth of your word. I pray that your spirit would be active in our hearts, giving us understanding, illuminating these great truths. Lord, we're in a period of time in our church family where there's a lot of sickness and distress. And Lord, I just pray that you would, by your grace, set these things aside for us this morning, that we might behold your glory. And I am convinced that if we see you more clearly, then our suffering and our distresses will be understood more properly. And Father, it may even be that we give thanks for difficult days, for they cause us to see you more clearly. Have your way in our hearts, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it was interesting, as I've already shared, this is a continuation of that discourse. And so already he has, he has offended, as it were, the religious leaders who said, you're not saying we're blind, are you? And Jesus was saying, in fact, if you were blind, you wouldn't have any sin. He doesn't mean that they would be without sin. I think he means that if you were blind, you would at least recognize your blindness and you would be at least in an advantageous place to be cured of your blindness. But since you say we see and are blind, then your sin remains. So that's offensive to the religious leaders. Of all people, they did not consider themselves to be blind. If anybody had sight, they had sight. And here's Jesus saying to them, if you, if you knew you were blind, there would be help for you. But since you're so prideful that you think you see, your sin is, you're double blind. You're like the man who had the mud spread on his eyes. He was already blind, but you spread mud on his eyes and made him doubly blind. 
Well, that's the way the Pharisees were. They knew exactly the implications of what Jesus was saying. And so in verse chapter 10, verse 1, Jesus really begins, I think, with what he's doing here is a generalization in regards to shepherd and sheep. Now, that's interesting to me because later on it says they didn't understand what these things were that he was saying. Well, obviously, they would have understood the, the basic relationship of a shepherd and his sheep. They were very familiar. Israel had a whole history of being shepherds. Even their God is called a shepherd in the Old Testament. Uh, David was a shepherd boy. He shepherded the flock of his father, Jesse. So there were many flocks. Jacob had flocks and his son tended the flocks. And so they were very familiar with the shepherd analogy, but if for some reason it says they don't understand. So I'm, I'm gleaning from that that it doesn't mean they didn't understand shepherding. They were very familiar with that. What they didn't understand was why is he talking about this? And so that's why I think Jesus at first is here just giving a generalization in regards to shepherding. He says of the shepherd, beginning in verse 1, basically through verse 4, but I drew out some of the points that he's making. These are, I think, just generally recognized as truths in regards to shepherds and shepherding. Number 1, verse 2, you see this, a shepherd enters by the fold, uh, by, into the fold by a door. Now, there were folds that were maybe in local, in cities where the shepherds would come in and they would, multiple shepherds would bring their sheep into the fold and there would be a, a person there that would stand security essentially. So they, they could be talking about that or out in the field. Sometimes it was just a, a ring of rocks. Sometimes they'd drag brush together and, and just make basically a pen. And then the, the shepherd himself would lie there in the opening, the access, and he would be their guard. Well, we know of a shepherd that the shepherd, when he comes, enters by the door. That's just general knowledge. They should have known that. The Pharisees and the religious leaders would have known that. They'd been centuries as shepherds. Of course, they knew that a shepherd comes by the door. The shepherd doesn't climb over the walls. He doesn't sneak in. He comes to the door. He gains access to his flock through the door. So these are, again, general truths that they would surely have acknowledged. In verse 2 and 3 also, the doorkeeper knows him as the shepherd and permits him entry into the fold. That was just common knowledge. If the man walks up and he didn't bring the sheep into the fold, then the doorkeeper knows that you've not been here before. You're not a shepherd. You're not getting to the sheep. My job is to stand security over the flocks, and I don't recognize you. But generally, the doorkeeper was aware and recognized the shepherd and would allow the shepherd access to the fold to go in and to call his sheep and to lead them out. So these are general realities, truths, characteristics in regards to the nature of the shepherd and the sheep that they, the religious leaders would have acknowledged. This is true. They know this. This is not a surprise or controversial to them. In verse 1, some other things here. There are others, there are others sometimes who gain entry into the fold who aren't shepherds. He says that in the beginning. I say to you, he does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way. He is a thief and a robber. So there are, he's pointing something out. There are those who would gain entry to the fold that are not the shepherds that know that they won't be able to get through the door and will find some other way. So, so that tells me that something they would all acknowledge is that a, a gathering of sheep in the side of a fold are, are a target for some people. Not just the shepherd is coming for the sheep. There are others who would like to have access and ownership and possession of the sheep and they come. So not everybody who gets into the fold comes through the door. Some of them try to come in some other way. So there are those who hope to gain access or entry into the fold that are not the shepherds. They would have understood that. I mean, they lived in a, in a real world. There were real people who were dishonest and deceitful who would steal away sheep. So they wouldn't have denied this whatsoever. In fact, there are those who are not allowed entry by the doorkeeper. Rather, they gain access. This is another thing they would understand covertly or maybe even deceptively. They climb up, verse 1, some other way. 
So there are those who gain or hope to gain access to the sheep, but they know they're not shepherds and they know that the doorkeeper won't let them in and they know that if they did get in, the sheep wouldn't know their voice. So they must, by necessity, they must gain access in some other way. He says here, they climb over the wall. But I think they could also be somehow deceptive. Or maybe, as Jesus says later on, maybe they can climb in and mingle among the sheep as wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. Maybe they disguise themselves as sheep and they get in the midst of the flock and lead them away in that way. These are all things that the religious leaders would have acknowledged. In fact, I don't think he said anything right now that would have necessarily been disagreeable to the religious leaders. They would have said, of course, of course. There's a doorkeeper. The doorkeeper doesn't let just anybody in. He has to be a shepherd. And only the shepherds can enter into the fold. Are there other people who try to gain access? Sure, but they're not shepherds. They have to come in some other way. They would have completely agreed with that. Another one is these are, uh, these are not shepherds, these who climb up. These are not shepherds, but are rather, he calls them thieves and robbers, i.e. those who take for their own profit those who are not their own. That's what, their, that's what their aim is. That's what their goal is. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. He who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he's a thief and a robber. He hopes to gain and to profit by the sheep in some way, even though he is not the owner of the sheep. He hopes to take possession of another man's flock. He's essentially a thief and a robber. He is all of those things. They wouldn't have disagreed with that. If you try to go into a fold, a sheepfold and take another man's sheep and you climb up over the wall, not a single Pharisee or priest living would have looked at that and said, that's an honorable thing to do. They would have said, outrage. It's an outrage that you would take another man's flock or his sheep knowing that you're not the shepherd. Well, Jesus says that there are those like that. And the religious leaders would have said, of course there are. And we defy them. <laughs> we despise them and they're disgusting to us. They would have wholeheartedly agreed with him there. In verse 5 and 6, another thing here that I think is an observation that Jesus makes generally is that having no sheep, the thief must take by force or deceit the sheep. Or the, 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 the thief must take them by force or deceit. For they will not by nature follow him, but will be inclined to flee from him. I think that's an obvious truth as well. They would have understood that. He says later on that the sheep hear his voice and they follow him. Well, if you come in over the wall, the sheep don't hear, they may hear your voice, but they don't follow you because they don't recognize you. So the thief is forced to take them in some way by deceit or by force against their will, against their natural inclinations, which would be to follow their shepherds. They wouldn't have disagreed with that. That's the only way you can take those sheep because they won't follow you if they don't know you. You have to convince them of some reason to follow you. Maybe you promise them green pastures. Maybe you dress like a sheep. Maybe you make yourself appear as though you are a shepherd. But, but you have to come up with some way to get them to follow you. The religious leaders wouldn't have disagreed with that. In verse 3, Jesus makes another observation here that the true shepherd's voice is heard. In other words, recognized by his sheep. That's a truism. I mean, they would have understood that. Uh, it's amazing. I've read stories where there could be multiple flocks uh, in the same fold. And what would happen was the doorkeeper, would, he would allow the shepherd to come in and the shepherd would come in and make some audible noise and all of his sheep mixed among those different flocks would hear his voice and they would all start segregating them out themselves out from the rest of the flock and he would stand by the gate and let them pass through those who were his sheep and they all knew his voice so they came to him all the other sheep just stayed there in other words anything that don't move is not my sheep because my sheep hear my voice and they come out in fact I lead them by my voice and they come to the gate and the doorkeeper lets them outside of the fold and I take them out and bring them in they hear my voice that's a truism they wouldn't have disagreed with that He's exactly right. They hear the voice of the shepherd. That's why they follow their shepherd. They know their shepherd and their shepherd knows them. They wouldn't have disagreed with that. 
In verse 3, he says that he leads them out. He calls them by name and he leads them out. It indicates that the shepherd has an intimacy with his sheep. He has a, a, a close relationship with the sheep. They know his voice. They know the tone of his voice. Uh, it's amazing to me sometimes, it just not just sheep but other animals, how just a tone of voice can communicate something to that animal that he knows exactly what they mean. And, they, and that's true, but there has to be an intimacy and a relationship between the shepherd and the sheep. They would have all agreed with that readily because they knew it. They saw it in practice all the time. And so Jesus, I think, here is stating just generalizations about a truth. Does he have a purpose? I think so. But I think he's beginning here by stating what they would agree as generally true in regards to shepherd and sheep. He leads them out of the fold. The shepherd does that. They will leave the security of the fold only upon the tr their trust in their shepherd. Uh, think about that for a moment. They're in that fold, and that's a secure place. There's a shepherd there, usually a shepherd or someone who is hired to watch the door. And that fold is secured from the predators. The only way they are leaving that security is to follow their shepherd. And when they do that, what they are essentially doing is they are assigning the security of the fold to the shepherd. Now I'm going outside the fold, but I got the shepherd. And so my security is intact. So I'm going to follow the shepherd and one day the shepherd may bring me back into the fold. But if I'm with the shepherd, he is my security, not just the fold. They are willing to leave the security of the fold for their superior trust in their shepherd. That's, that's a truism. I mean, they saw that worked out all the time. They had a whole history of seeing that played out time and time again. Those sheep would come out of that fold, that secure place, and they would follow their shepherd into the, into the grasslands or to the mountains, as it were, wherever green pastures were, they followed the shepherd. They wouldn't have disagreed with that. In verse 4, it says of the shepherd, having led his sheep from the fold, he goes ahead of them towards the pastures. They wouldn't have disagreed with that. They saw it worked out all the time. That's the way they go. I always thought it was interesting that you drive cattle, but you lead sheep. They don't get behind the sheep and drive the sheep. They don't, they don't muscle the sheep in that way. The shepherd, by the authority of his voice, goes ahead of the sheep and the sheep follow him. I've always made the analogy that the sheep closest to the shepherd hear the shepherd clear his voice and they follow him. And there's some far distant, maybe far distant, they don't actually hear the shepherd's voice themselves, but they see those who do hear his voice going in a certain direction and they, so they follow them. And so the shepherd is authoritative and he is leading. They wouldn't have disagreed with that. They saw it worked out all the time. They knew these things were true. Every religious leader that he's speaking to should have consented and said, well, that's exactly right. What's your point? They would have agreed very much so with that. And then the last one I observed here. In verse 4 is that the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They saw that worked out as well. You could go into the fold and call out and a certain number of sheep would come out and they would follow you out and the, you would lead them away and all the other sheep would stay in there. Why, are, why does this one group of sheep follow him and the other group of sheep don't? Because they know their shepherd's voice. And the same would be true if the other shepherd came and called his sheep. Nobody else's sheep are going to follow him. Only his sheep are going to follow him. They wouldn't have denied that at all. They would have agreed to everything, every observation Jesus just made. That's why I think Jesus was generalizing in regards to the nature of shepherding and sheep and all these things because he was really drawing them to, to reflect upon the idea of shepherding. And that's another sermon altogether. Why the abrupt change? Jesus was talking about blindness and sight. Why does all of a sudden does he start talking about shepherding and then what he does say about shepherding, they say to themselves, well, what's your point? We would agree with that. And that's what really strikes me because in verse 6, this is where I think things change because this figure of speech, it says, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. Well, I went through the thing I just went through to make the point to you that there's nothing there that they wouldn't have understood. They've seen that happen. It was their life experience. Nothing he said here they would disagree with. So what is it that they didn't understand? I don't think it means that they didn't understand what he's talking about. I think what they didn't understand is why is he talking about it? What is your point? You just said that if we were blind, we'd have no sin. But because we say we see, we have sin and we are indeed blind. And you went directly to talking about sheep. What's your point? What's your point? 
That's what they didn't understand. And to me, it was really helpful for me, but I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 34 because this is where I think Jesus is taking them. While you're going there, I wrote this to myself. Regarding Jesus' general observations of shepherding and sheep, they surely would have agreed. They were familiar with shepherding, even if not personally experienced in the practice. What they likely didn't understand was why he was saying those things or for what purpose he was saying them. And then in Ezekiel 34, I think you get a historical precedent here. And this is going to be critical, so listen carefully to what he says here. Beginning in chapter 4, the Lord, a word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel, and he's prophesying now in regards to the shepherds of Israel. The shepherds of Israel. In other words, these religious leaders were called the shepherds of Israel. So that, that begins to make me think, wonder why Jesus suddenly shifted from blindness and sight to talking about shepherds. And they're scratching their head and they're saying, well, okay, we get it. We, we don't disagree with anything you said about shepherding, but why are you talking about shepherding? Here's why. Here's why. And listen what he says. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The disease you have not healed. I couldn't help but think of the re relationship of these words to even the blind man healed here. They were more upset because he, Jesus healed him on the Sabbath. But he says of these shepherds, then in that day, you have the broken you have not bound up, the scattered you have not brought back, nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity, you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered all over the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my flock has become a prey, my flock has become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds them fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. And he goes on in verse 10 to declare his judgments upon them. So listen to the accusations in summary of that chapter in regards to the shepherds of Israel. And then ask yourself, why would Jesus shift to the shepherd analogy in John chapter 10? In verse 2 of chapter 34 of Ezekiel, their accusation was that they fed themselves. The whole the job of a shepherd is to feed the sheep. They fed themselves. If you're not feeding the sheep, you've already neglected the basic priority of your role as a shepherd. You are to provide for the sheep. You take them to pastures where they can be fed. And through their feeding, they are be to, to be healthy. And his first accusation against the shepherds of Israel in that day, in Ezekiel's day, was that you have not fed the sheep. You just simply haven't fed them. You fed yourselves. In fact, later on, he says that you clothe yourself with their wool. And I thought to myself, literally, you are clothing yourselves on the backs of the sheep you are called to tend to and to care for. So they were feeding themselves. They were getting fat themselves, exploiting the sheep. Now, does the shepherd do that? Jesus has already laid out some general truths about shepherding, and they were all in agreement with those things. But now he's bringing it home. This is why I laid it out. Yes, you were in agreement, but you don't understand something. Here's what you need to understand. You are guilty in your generation of what your fathers were in theirs. You are feeding yourselves from the sheep. Man, I couldn't think of how relevant that is in our day. There are people making astronomical salaries, feeding themselves, literally fattening themselves upon the backs of the sheep of God, the flock of God. 
They are exploiting them to elevate and to exalt themselves and to increase their comfort in this world. Where is the sacrificial shepherd, as Jesus says later, who lays down his life for the sheep? They are non-existent in Israel. In that day, Ezekiel's day, and in the day of Christ. And Christ has drawn them to this particular passage, I believe. Secondly, he says to them, you exploit the flock. In verse 3, you eat the fat, and as I mentioned earlier, you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without even feeding the flock. To these shepherds, the flock existed for their comfort and their pleasure. Singularly, you fatten yourselves and you put on nice wool clothes off, literally off the backs of the sheep. And you slaughter the fat ones and fill yourselves up and you don't even bother feeding the flock that you're actually slaughtering. And so it was, I think, in Israel's time and also in the time of Christ with the priestly caste, as it were. In verse 4, they disregarded the general well-being of the sheep. He said here, those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. And the scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the loss. I mean, I don't know how you can abandon your role as a shepherd any more than that. And that's exactly what they were guilty of in Ezekiel's day. And God sent Ezekiel to confront them on it. And I think they were guilty of the same thing again in Jesus' day. They had not healed up the brokenhearted. They had put more burdens on them. I mean, Jesus even makes the accusation, you tie up heavy burdens and lie them upon the widow's back. You don't relieve her burden as you should do. You make her burden twice as heavy. And he says of them, looking for proselytes, you travel land and sea to make one proselyte to Judaism. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. You weren't relieving people. You were adding to the burdens of people. And so it was in their generation, in Ezekiel's day and in the day of Christ. He goes on to say there, they were scattered in verse 5 or verse 4. They were domineering them. He says that rather than doing these things with force and with severity, you have exercised a dominion over them. I think that's in the negative term. They should have exercised a stewardship, yes, under God, but they were dominating them. They were ruling over the sheep. And the New Testament equivalent of the elders lording it over the people. They were, they were a dominating, profiting ideal in regards to keeping of the sheep. The sheep exist for me. And so sheep, you do what I say. And I will exercise that authority to command your behavior. That's exactly what they were doing to the people. And Jesus, I think, has called their attention to this. In verse 5, it says of them that they were scattered by their lack of care. Verse 5, he says, they were scattered for lack of a shepherd. And they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. So not only the shepherd's primary task is to keep the flock together, avoid scattering them at any cost because that makes them vulnerable to their predators. You are responsible for scattering them. You've made them so burdened. You've dominated them to such a degree. You've left them sick and weak and all sorts of things and profited from them that they've grown cynical of you and they're untrusting. And as a result, they've been scattered. And in their scattering, they became vulnerable to the predators. Jesus is essentially saying what Ezekiel was saying to his generation. He's saying to his own generation, so it is with you. You've done all of these things. Verse 6, he says, my flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered all over the surface of the earth and there was no one to search or seek for them. So not only were they made exposed to predators, but in verse 6, you see there that there was no one even to rescue them. There was no one left. My flock wandered, he says, my flock was scattered over the surface of the earth and there was no one to search or seek for them. So you lost possession. You lost control of the flock. You exposed them to these dangers from predators. They went out. You mistreated them, exploited them, made yourself fat and luxurious by, on their very backs. And then when they finally were scattered, you didn't even have the decency to go out and to search for them and to at least bring them back into the fold. You let them wander in the mountains. And as a result, systematically over time, the predator has picked them off one at a time and fattened himself with my flock. That's, that's Ezekiel's confrontation of the shepherds in his day. 
And I don't think it's coincidental that on the heels of this discourse where Jesus is rebuking the blindness of the Pharisees that he introduces this shepherd motif that they would have understood nor uh, uh, very familiarly. And then in doing so, he lays out these observations that they would have wholeheartedly agreed to, but yet they didn't understand why is he bringing this into the matter. And if they had any blindness at all, any ability to see at all, they would make the connection of the rich heritage of Israel's life with the shepherds. And they might have drawn from the analogy, but they didn't understand. They didn't understand. They were blinded just exactly as he said earlier. So they were left without these shepherds. Now, here's what was amazing to me is in the very same passage where he's doing that. If you will look forward with me, Jesus or the Lord talks of the restoration of Israel in chapter 34 of Ezekiel. But listen to what the Lord says as a shepherd. uh, Verse 11, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself. If you underline, underline everywhere where God says I myself or mine. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I, he says again, will feed my flock. I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. As for you, my flock, says the Lord, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the rams and the male goats. Is it too slight a thing for you that you should feed in the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of the pasture? Or that you should drink of the clear waters, that you must foul the rest with your feet? As for my flock, they must eat what you tread down with your feet and drink what you may uh, foul with your feet. Therefore, says the Lord God to them, behold, I, even I will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep because you push with side and shoulder and thrust out all the weak with your horns until you have scattered them abroad. Therefore, I will deliver my flock and there will no longer be a prey and I will judge between one sheep and another. Here it is. And this is why I think Jesus referred to sheep. Then I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he will feed them and he will feed them himself and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David will be a prince among them. I will make a covenant of peace with them and eliminate harmful beasts from them. And it goes on in that, I think, even making reference to the millennial reign of Christ Jesus. This is why I think Jesus introduced the subject of shepherding. And I think that's why he introduced it with a generalization so that he would get their agreement. That's right. This is the way shepherds behave. And then he can bring this home and bring the shepherd motif back to Ezekiel and God's confrontation of the hypocrisy of those who were called to be the shepherds of Israel so that they might read that and understand that God is someday going to shepherd his own people by sending his shepherd. And that's where we pick up in verse 7. Notice as well of chapter 10 of John really quickly. He says, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. Uh, sometimes when we read that, we, we get confused because w- w- one minute he's a door, one minute he's a shepherd. What is he, a shepherd or a door? Well, the shepherd was the door. Uh, that's what he's saying here. The shepherd, in many cases, would set up the fold and he would lie his own body in that opening, in that access. So he literally was the door. So Jesus is not saying, I'm this or I'm this. He's saying, I am, as the shepherd, I am both of these things. I am the good shepherd and I am the door. And so Jesus brings it home to them in verse 7. Truly, truly, listen up. I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me, I I think he means there, all who came before me and proposed themselves as the means by which the sheep could be accessed were liars. They were thieves. It has always been through me that access is given to the fold. They are thieves and they are robbers. But the sheep, 
did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief, I love this, the thief comes for one purpose, to steal and to kill and to destroy, period. He doesn't come to guide the flock. If he's feeding the flock, it is to his own end so that he might fatten them for his own meal. Everything he does is in the context of these three things, steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, in contradiction to that, I am come that the sheep might have life. I'm come that they might have life. I'm not here to exploit the sheep. I'm not here to kill and destroy and to steal away the sheep. I am here that the sheep might have life. And I came not only that they might have life, but have it in its abundance, in the fullness of life. Not just life, not just sustaining life, but life abundantly, life joy, uh, the fullness of life. I am come for that reason. Now he comes back to the good shepherd in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. Notice that, by the way, in his first analogy there, he says he is a shepherd of the sheep. Not the one who climbs over the wall. He is not a shepherd of the sheep. The one who comes to the gate, the gatekeeper lets him in and he calls his sheep. That's, that's a shepherd. That's what a shepherd does. But here he's saying not I am a shepherd. He says I am the shepherd. That's why I think he's referring their minds back to Ezekiel. Yes, God did prophesy strongly against the shepherds of Israel and their abandonment of the flock of God and their exploitation and mistreatment of them. But in the same rebuke, there was a promise of God that he was going to shepherd his own people and that he was going to put his own shepherd over them. Jesus is essentially saying to the blind Pharisees, I am that shepherd. <laughs> Ezekiel saw my day coming in prophecy. That shepherd is here. And he's not like any other shepherd you've had. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired man, think about it. If you're the door, you literally are putting your life on the line for the sheep. Because if a wolf comes, uh, you're going to have to fight the wolf off. And wolves are pretty dangerous. And the predators of the sheep that eat sheep will also eat the flesh of men. And so when you lay yourself down at the door, you're putting the safety of all the sheep inside that fold uh, on your own shoulders. You're saying essentially, over my dead body will you get to these sheep. And that's what Jesus was. He was the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. I remember verse 12, uh, even when I was in school, one of the things I first heard our professor say to us on the inauguration or the, or the orientation day is he got in the pulpit and he looked out there at us and he stared at us for the longest time and he finally spoke up and he says, are you men hirelings or shepherds? And that's all he said. Are you hirelings? And man, that echoed through my mind all the way through Fruitland. Am I going to be a hireling? Is God called me out and drawn me out to be a hireling, to, to go to work for the money? Or does he give me a heart of an under-shepherd who loves the sheep because he loves the shepherd? Will he lay down his life for the sheep or will you exploit the sheep and profit by the sheep? Are you a hireling or are you a shepherd? Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. I am the good shepherd. I'm not a hireling. <laughs> there are hirelings. Listen to what they do. They're not shepherds. They're not the owner of the sheep. In fact, the hireling, because he is in it for his own profit, and he, re, and he concludes that me being dead is not profitable, when he sees the wolf, he flees. He runs away because the wolf is dangerous to him. Regardless of the sheep, they're not his. He, had, he stands to have no loss in the sheep's being eaten by the wolf. But what he does stand to lose is his own life if he stands there for the sheep. And because he's a hireling and the sheep do not belong to him, he runs. I'm convinced that one of the great damages to the Christian faith, especially in America, is fleeing hirelings. When the, when the devil comes against the church and the outside of the world starts encroaching and the threats get high and the threats for lawsuits and all sorts of things begin to be heavy, there are hirelings who, who are in it for self-preservation and they throw the sheep to the wolves and they abandon that place. I met a man one time that, that said 
openly that whenever he first got wind of controversy in the church, he began looking for another church to serve because he wasn't going to be hindered in the things of God by the controversies in the church. In my, my room, I, remembering that to myself, the thought that comes to my mind, hireling, hireling. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to serve here as long as it's pleasurable, but when the wolf howls and the wolf encroaches and I see him coming, even before anybody else does, I'm out of here. Because that is not in my best interest. Jesus says there are hirelings, and I'm not one of them. Jesus says, he who is a hired hand, not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and he leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf does what? He does what wolves do. He snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand, and he is not concerned about the sheep. I think that's a direct confrontation with the religious leaders who were to be the shepherds in Israel of his day, just like they were in Ezekiel 34. They're hirelings. They're not concerned about the sheep. They're concerned about keeping their position. And now that the good shepherd is on the scene, they, they reject the very one whom, whom was prophesied who would come and be the shepherd of God's people. They reject him altogether. They are doubly blind. They are doubly blind. And Jesus goes on to say, verse 14, I am the good shepherd. This is so comforting to me. I know my own. Uh, I can't tell you how often that's been a, a bomb to my soul. Uh, he is the good shepherd, and he knows I am his. When he comes to the fold to get his sheep and he calls out, he knows that I know his voice. I belong to him. He's not a hireling. He's not going to run away when the wolf comes. In fact, he's going to run towards the wolf. <laughs> he's going to go and shut down the wolf. He's not a hireling. He is the good shepherd, and he knows his own. I know my own, he says. And this is glorious. I, his own, know him. Do you know the sheep know the shepherd? Not just that the shepherd knows the sheep, but the sheep know the shepherd. They don't know about the shepherd. It's not saying they, they've heard stories about the shepherd and they've got a lot of good facts gathered about the, the shepherd. In fact, they have accurate facts in terms of the nature of the shepherd. He doesn't say that. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. I can't, I can't make clear enough this morning this reality. You may be in this sanctuary this morning and you know much about the shepherd. You know him doctrinally, you know him theologically, you've done a systematic theology and you've come to gather all sorts of things about the shepherd. And that's a wonderful thing and it may even be instrumental to you becoming, coming to know the shepherd. But there is a huge difference between knowing things about the shepherd and knowing the shepherd and being the shepherd's own. The scriptures say, by the Spirit in our Father, he cries out in our heart and says, Abba, Father. There's a recognition of the great shepherd, the good shepherd. And if you belong to him, you know it. You know it. There's no one ever going to convince me that I don't belong to the shepherd because I've met the shepherd. I've had these discussions about the authority of Scripture and the, all the debates and people bring all the evidence and those are wonderful things and apologetics has a wonderful place. But at the end of the day, my convictions regarding the authority of Scripture is because I know the author. I have met him. He is real. He is a reality in my life. There is an intimacy there. I know my shepherd and my shepherd knows me. That's what Jesus is saying. He is to the people and the religious leaders have not been that at all. He also says, even as I, the Father knows me and I know the Father, he says here, I lay down my life for the sheep, which he literally was going to do. I have other sheep, he says of us, and this is where we come in because we're the other sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. He asserts the authority, verse 18. No one has taken it away from me. The wolf didn't come and steal away my life. I laid it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. Where's the authority come from? He says, this commandment I received from my Father. Now, verse 19 and 21, I'll get into 22 and beyond tonight, but a division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. 
They didn't have a division in the earlier words, the analogy, because they didn't understand what he meant. But then I think it came clear to them exactly what he was saying here. You're the hirelings. You're, you're the hirelings. I'm the good shepherd. You've, you've climbed up over walls. I've came through the door. I am the door, in fact. And they understood what he meant. And a division occurred among them because of these words, the words he's speaking between verses 7 and 18. Verse 20 now, many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Can you imagine that? That's the accusation. So offensive and so doubly blind are they that when Jesus confronts them with their own history and his identity, they look at him and they say, he's insane. He's got a demon. I mean, you can't get any more blasphemous than that, it seems to me. And they, ask this, they, they say to the people, why do you listen to him? In verse 21, others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? So they take us full circle back to where this controversy began. Because he healed a man born blind. And he did so in such a way that exposed their blindness and they were deeply offended by that. So there's a lot of points of application. I take this, uh, stand with me. I take this obviously in the sense of Christ revealing more clearly who he is. But here's something for, I think for leaders in the church today. Uh, we, could, we could read through God's rebuke of the shepherds of Israel. And we ought to hear that very carefully. Because we could be guilty of the very same things as leaders in the church today. And you may say, well, I'm not an elder. I'm not a deacon. What about me? You're a leader of someone. Husbands, you're a leader of your wife, fathers, mothers. You're leaders of your children. What are you doing with the stewardship involved there? Are you fulfilling the role that was God was rebuking in his own shepherds? And to me, one of the applications is, is I may serve as an under-shepherd, but I ought to be pointing everybody to the true shepherd, the one shepherd. And whatever your leadership capacity is, that's the shepherd that you ought to be pointing people to because that's the shepherd that laid down his life for the sheep. And that's the shepherd who was never a hireling. So I think that's a great point of application for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that we have a, a good shepherd, a great shepherd of our souls, as Peter says. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear the rebuke of God to the, those who were to be shepherds in Israel, those, the very people you would think who would have the greatest access and the greatest possibility of recognizing the, the Messiah when he came were the very ones who were the hardest and the blindest to that reality. And Lord, I pray that we might take a lesson from that as well. The more religious we get, the more adept we get in handling the scriptures, Father, the more knowledgeable we get, the more we amass a great wealth of knowledge there is a real danger in pride becoming the product of that. And in that pride, we become, as these Pharisees, Father, doubly blind. We become not only blind to the fact that we're blind, but, Father, we claim, we'll be claiming to see why we are blind. And so, Lord, we just pray that you would help us hear the warnings here. And, and at the same time, Lord, help us to rejoice that we indeed have a Savior. We have a good shepherd who is the guardian of our soul, who laid down his life that we might live, who came into this world not to exploit us and not to use us and destroy us, but to give us life and to give us fullness of life. I pray this morning that everyone in this sanctuary knows that life and they know that shepherd. And Father, for those who may not, I pray that this may be the day that your spirit awakens them to the glory of Christ and to their need for a Savior. Have your way in these few moments of invitation. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.